When I got into the slum for the first time, I started doubting myself if I was bringing the right solution because I felt, is it really technology that they need in this place or there's more? But all I knew was tech. I tried to convince everyone at the slum that with technology, you can actually make headway. With technology, you can have a different future. With STEM, you can have, you know, a beautiful future, a desired future, and, you know, you don't need to end up where you were born. That's Abisoy Ajaya Kinforarin. In 2014, she set out to inspire girls in Nigeria to excel in careers in technology. But my own joy at the time was that they are coming from where they've never seen computer before to try and put some codes together to see it work. And that is the joy. The fact that they can feel this emotion towards them and they can derive such joy, all of a sudden they don't see where they are coming from. They are not seeing their status anymore. This is the world they are seeing right now. We can only get better from there. This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through true stories of courage and purpose, we put a human face on the biggest challenges of our time. This season, we will focus on how women's excellence shapes history. In each episode, we bring you powerful voices of women sharing challenges that they had to overcome across different fields and cultures and their journey to achieving greatness. Abisoy was born in Akure, a city in southwestern Nigeria. When she was only three, her mother passed away. And life was pretty much unbearable for a lot of us, for my siblings especially. And um, I get the backlash later on. <laughs> you know, they have to start from my siblings, from my older ones before it gets to me. But I, that was, from my dad's perspective, that was his way of um, training his children, basically. Fed up with her father's physical abuse, Abisoy decided to leave home at age 15. She fled to Lagos, Nigeria's largest city. This was obviously without my father's consent because obviously they wouldn't have allowed us to or allowed any of his children to leave the house. And we were not certain of what the future holds at all. If we'll probably further education, if we would be empowered economically, we were not certain. So the essence of leaving the house was actually to find something to do with one's life, of course, with education and any other form of um, economic empowerment. It was me running from home, so there was no communication. And if he had known that I was actually in the country, he would have dragged me back to the house. So I was pretty much hiding, actually. Being an extrovert and not knowing what life I have in front of me, I needed to move. I needed to get things done. I needed to move around Nigeria to look for education, to look for admission to schools. I needed that freedom. So I told my siblings, that oh, when next are you guys going to be in town? I need us to tell my father that I'm actually around, that I'm in this country. Because we had to find the story for him so that he won't look for me. I mean, my father was highly connected while he was alive. So he would do anything possible. If anyone had told him that, oh, I saw Abisoye somewhere, he'll say, where? Oh, let's trace. Let's check. My daughter is somewhere. Let's bring her back home. 
So I was preaching. Well, whenever I'm in Lagos, I'm hiding. Abisoy was determined to pave her own way, but she struggled to get accepted into a university. It was difficult. I tried all the exams possible. I did good in many of the exams, but it's just what it is, especially I think in certain African countries where you have a particular slot. You probably have like, for instance, 500 slots for 5,000 students. So what gives you the edge besides brilliance? What else? Do you want someone to say, oh, I have a connection somewhere? I didn't have any connection, so there was no way for me to even get into school. I spent four years trying to gain admission to school. Four years. In four years, I have peers who had finished. And I was still dragging. And at the time, depending on what you are comparing life with, it can be really tough when the people you think you went to school with seems to be doing better than you and you are just like nowhere. So I remember how, you know, I had the low self-esteem. I didn't have confidence, nothing, because I couldn't face anyone and say, oh, where are you now? And I'm like, I'm here. And I'm like, I'm actually nowhere. Abisoy applied and was admitted to a college in the United States, but her visa was denied at the embassy. As a last resort, she decided to follow her brother's advice and to volunteer at an IT firm. There, he told her, Abisoy could learn computer programming. I got there and I was like, oh my God, what's going on in this place? One, because I was one of the youngest. I was like a novice. Everybody there, almost everyone, super educated, master's degree. And I'm like, I'm coming here with graphic skills and everyone is coding, everyone is reading some crazy big books just to learn computer programming, to do Oracle-related stuff, to do audit-related stuff. And I was like, I don't think I belong in this place. So there was a lot of conflict. And I was telling my brother that I'm not sure I can do this. And it would be like, oh, you can, you should, you should stay, try. But it was a good thing I stayed because that was where everything changed. Abisoy went from volunteering to working as an intern. Soon, she was hired as a programmer but she had to work hard to get there. And I remember what broke it for me was when they found out the organization, his name is Prisekigwe, when he said, oh, Abisoy, I'm giving you a task. And I was like, okay, to do what? He said, okay, you know, we have clients coming in, paying for programs, you know, we have these trainings that we do. I said, okay, I'm aware. And he said, um, I don't want them to use paper forms anymore, whereby we just give them paper forms to fill, that I need you to, <laughs> to create a form an application form that they can fill. I'm like, application form, I should create it. So I was like, okay, who has created it before in this organization so that I can go meet the person for insight? And I, you know, after making that research, asking around, everyone said no one. I said, hmm? So what am I supposed to use to create this? I started thinking. Abisoy did her best with the skills that she had just learned, but she kept running into obstacles. And I went to meet the founder and I was like, it's not working. He said, Make it work. <laughs> I was like, well, it's not working. I, just, I kept asking everyone, you know, for insight, for input, for help. And I couldn't get it. So I started going to external organizations where they do trainings, asking, showing them my lines of code for roughly one year. I went everywhere. I joined all the forums online. Internet was a luxury, but whatever internet I got at the time, I was using it to make research, to just understand lines of code and why mine did not work. The day it worked, oh my God, that was a break for me. And I knew, okay, I'm stuck with this right now. 
Like Abisoy, there is a growing number of women working in STEM globally. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. In the United States, women constitute 48% of the total workforce, but only 34% in the field of STEM. Black, Latina, and indigenous women occupy less than 10% of the STEM workforce. The gender gaps are particularly high in some of the fastest growing and highest paid jobs like computer science and engineering. However, this hasn't always been the case. In the 1980s, you almost had parity. Well, actually, let me even go further. You know, the world's first programmer was a woman. That's Reshma Sajani, founder of Girls Who Code. So you had women in tech, you know, from the beginning. So if you went into a, a gaming camp in the 1980s, even if you walked into a college classroom in computer science or engineering in the 1980s, the room would have felt pretty diverse, pretty close to parity probably would have been 60% boys and 40% girls. And then in the 1980s, the personal computer came out. And so did a lot of these cultural images or movies like Weird Science and Revenge of the Nerds. And even the way that when the first computer came out, it was very much marketed. If you look at some of those original ads, it was very much marketed as a toy for boys. And so all of a sudden, as computing became more lucrative, we started pushing girls out. And then in the late 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s, it's almost like you woke up one day, you know, at MIT or, you know, if you're working at a technology company and you suddenly went from 40% women to 12, 13, 14%. And so you had this massive decline of women in technology. And, you know, we've basically since then been trying to fight our way back to parity. So right now, you know, the average technology company or Google or Microsoft probably has, you know, 18, 19% female engineers. The numbers of black and Latino numbers are abysmal, maybe 1%, 2%. They're horrible. Why do you think it's so important for girls and more specifically girls and women of color to be involved in STEM? Because, well, first of all, these jobs pay really well. You know, it's like $120,000 a year. I mean, you know, I have students who are leaving homeless shelters, you know, especially after the past two years, who's just, whose entire families have just been rocked, devastated. And so if you can get a stable job that pays really well, that's in demand, that's a big deal. Coming from a working class family, Reshma understands how difficult reaching economic stability can be. I know I grew up as, the daughter of refugees, my dad used to always say to me, you should be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. For him, it was about financial security, safety. And I, it's the same thing for so many of my students. My parents came here as refugees in 1973. And both of my parents were trained engineers. And they got refugee status to come to this country when they were expelled by the dictator Idi Amin in Uganda. And even though they were trained to engineers, my father worked as a machinist at night. My mother sold cosmetics. And from the time I was a little girl, my dad would read to me these little Reader's Digest books about people who were making a difference, like Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi. And so from the time I was little, I wanted to change the world. And so I was, you know, captain my debate team and, you know, I was leading marches when I was 13. I thought the way that I would make a difference was through politics. And so I went to law school, graduated $300,000 in student loan debt and found myself kind of stuck working as a corporate lawyer. And I was in my early 30s and 
you know, I wasn't changing the world. I was quite frankly doing the very opposite. And I just one day found the courage to just quit. And I decided to run for United States Congress. I was the first South Asian American woman to ever run for U.S. Congress. I ran against an 18-year incumbent in a Democratic primary. I was never going to win, but I thought I was going to win. And that campaign experience of just knocking on doors and going into communities, going into schools was like the best, you know, 10 months of my life. And I lost that race spectacularly. It wasn't even close. But, you know, as part of losing that race, that when I was in the campaign trail, I was just so damn alive because I was doing the work that I knew I wanted to do ever since I was a little girl. Despite losing the race, Reshma's experience inspired her path forward. When I lost, I said, I'm not going back to that private sector job I hated. You know, even though I only have like $20,000 in my bank account, I still have, you know, $300,000 in student loan debt. I'm not going back there. I want to make a difference. And what are all the things I saw on the campaign trail that moved me? And I kept thinking about, you know, when you run for office, you end up visiting a lot of schools. And I would go into computer science classrooms and robotics labs, and I would just see lines and lines and lines of boys, you know, trying to be the next Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. And I was like, where are the girls? And because I wasn't a woman in STEM, right? Because I hadn't actually been in classrooms where there were no girls. I didn't get it because all I did know was that in 2010, there were these companies like Facebook, and Instagram that were, that were coming out where there were male CEOs, but the consumer base was female. And that if you were a software programmer working in one of those companies, you made a lot of money. You can make $120,000 a year. And that intrigued me because, you know, I grew up working class. I've had a job like from like scooping ice cream to working in retail to working in Subway since I was 12. And this idea that you could get a job as a software programmer, make $120,000 and like literally march into the middle class and that we could actually do that for thousands and tens of thousands and thousands of girls, girls like me, immigrant girls, girls are, you know, under the poverty line, girls that were black and brown, that, that excited me. And that's what led me to start Girls Who Code. Reshma founded Girls Who Code in 2012. The entire program was about teaching girls to basically solve a problem that they cared about. So for seven weeks, when you learned how to code, in the last two weeks, you teamed up and you said, okay, what's a problem in the world that we want to solve? What's an app we want to build? What's an algorithm we want to create? And so girls would say, I really care about recycling. I'm going to make an app to encourage people to recycle. Or my friend is being bullied at school, so I'm going to build an app or tool or an algorithm, you know, to basically to fight against bullying. So we started connecting coding to the things that matter to them, and then that lit a fire. Oftentimes, what people will say is, well, it's a pipeline problem. I want to hire more women. I want to hire more people of color. But when I look at who's graduating from computer science departments at the top tier one schools I recruit from, or even tier two schools, there's just not enough women. And so 10 years ago, that was the problem that I wanted to solve. I want to say, oh, really? Okay, you would hire women? Great. So I'm just going to teach so many girls that we're just going to flood the pipeline. And in the past 10 years, we did that. Since its founding, Girls Who Code has taught computer science skills to roughly 500,000 girls across the world, many of whom have gone on to have successful careers as computer programmers. 
Learning how to code also opened up doors for Abisoy. She was finally admitted into a university. Abisoy began to study part-time while she continued to work. While I was at the university, there was a conflict in my mind because I felt where I go to every day, we use computers for serious stuff. We are assessing and analyzing millions of records. We are using command prompts, we are using scripting. So I felt, oh, this is the only thing you should be able to do with a computer. So when I got to school and I saw a lot of people, you know, watching movies, I felt you're not utilizing this powerful tool properly. Then I saw some people playing games and I was worried. I was like, wait, why are they not doing what I'm doing in my place of work? So I started asking questions. I said, oh, I said, so what do you do with your computer? And person, you know, a lot of people said, I just watch movies. Another one said, oh, I just play games. Then I started thinking, oh, something has to be done. What it was, I wasn't sure. Abisoy distributed around 200 copies to assess computer literacy in her school. She realized that indeed, most students lacked computer skills, but she also discovered that they were eager to learn. In response, Abisoy organized a conference called Everybody Deserves to be Computer Literate. So it was really, really successful. I was excited. And when I was going through the feedback forms, I realized that there were more guys than ladies. And I was like, didn't I make this program interesting enough for ladies to actually apply what happened? And it was a free program. You know, it was fun. Some people got scholarship from it. Some people, you know, some people just started their career, you know, their career in IT as the result of that conference because we brought in people that were able to give such scholarship for IT stuff and everything. But I was not still satisfied. Then I remember the following year, we held a second one, and that was where we got a partnership with a bank that gave us money. And I was like, okay, so money can come out of this thing. It's good to know. And I thought, oh, now, you know, to get, you know, seven digits as something that you are doing by yourself, that you started from almost nothing or from frustration, it would be to be a good thing. Abisoy was encouraged by the reception but disappointed by how few women participated in the conference. To address the lack of women in STEM, she decided to approach underprivileged girls. When I got into the slum for the first time, I started doubting myself if I was bringing the right solution because I felt, is it really technology that they need in this place or there's more? But all I knew was tech. I didn't have money to share. There was nothing else. And I tried to convince everyone at the slum that with technology, you can actually make headway. With technology, you can have a different future. With STEM, you can have, you know, a beautiful future, a desired future. And, you know, you don't need to end up where you were born. But again, I started learning on the job. Why this whole thing was going on that there were many levels of relationships and discussion I needed to have at the community level. I realized that the ballers, we call them the chiefs, those are the elderly people who probably have certain titles. They understand a different language. You need to speak with them in the language they understand. And the parents obviously speak a different language. And you need to get through these people to get to your primary beneficiaries because their interest levels differs. And those are the things I had to learn while I was there. And when I'm talking to the girls one-on-one, it's a different ballgame. It's a different conversation and it's a different language. Because we need to talk to them where they are 
you can't talk to them where their parents are right now because their parents have different interests. But there were just different levels of engagement that we had to do at the community level. Abisoy started teaching the girls at a friend's place once a week. I mean, there were certain Eureka moments when maybe our girls figure out certain codes and everybody was just jumping, well, just shouting for joy. But my own joy at the time was that they are coming from where they've never seen computer before to try and put some codes together and to see it work. And that is the joy. Whatever is going to happen from there is not my business anymore. The fact that they can feel this emotion towards them and they can derive such joy, all of a sudden they don't see where they are coming from. They are not seeing their status anymore. This is the world they are seeing right now. We can only get better from there. Slowly but surely, Abisoy formed Pearls of Africa Foundation, a social enterprise that promotes the advancement of young girls through training and technology. Organizations as such are essential if we are to design our future for women as well as for men. So much of this type of innovation, it affects us as women. It affects us as women of color. It affects us as girls of color. That's Reshma again. You know, one of my students reminds me the story about how, you know, Google Home and Alexa, one of the big use cases of them are by perpetrators of domestic violence that use Google Home and Alexa to turn the music up real loud and to lock out their partners. And because nobody on the tech team of Google Home or Alexa were women, were women of color, maybe had faced domestic violence, they would have told you, hey, this is going to be used for that. And they would have built it differently. It's the same thing on Lyft and Uber. It took them years to put a button to report sexual harassment. If we had built that product on day one, we would have told you, build a button for sexual harassment. So, you know, all these innovations are being made without us in the room. They affect us and they affect our lives. And that's why it's important for women and women of color to be in the room. You know, we want the businesses of the future to be built by women because we know that when they're built by women and women of color, they will be inclusive. The number of women studying and working in STEM are on the rise. However, we rarely see them as key players in big technology companies. So now if you look at the graduating computer science and engineering classes of MIT, of Carnegie Mellon, of Stanford, you are really, really close to parity, really close to parity. But if you look at the technology workforce, it's still some of these major companies in big tech, it hasn't moved. And that's the problem that we have to solve. You know, one of the things I really struggle with right now, you know, is, you know, we've been trying so hard for so long to change the face of diversity in many of these big technology companies. And those companies were built mostly by white men. And they weren't built with founding teams that had women or people of color in them. And now year after year after year, we just try to push our way in, push our way in, push our way in. And it doesn't matter how talented we are, how prepared we are, how many degrees we have, they still won't let us in. And so like my conclusion is, is like, if you don't, from the beginning, if a company is not inclusive, it will never become inclusive. And so if we're going to build the next generation of Facebooks and Ubers, you know what I mean? And Googles, they need to be built by women and people of color. And they will be better businesses, better companies. They will actually be more successful because we already know we don't need to cite another survey or study that proves the fiscal benefit of diversity. We know. So we know we're missing out when you have these companies that are not inclusive. 
Although women haven't managed to truly penetrate into big tech companies, Abisoy is encouraged by the changing perception of women in STEM. And I'm glad that the world has changed. Young girls now know that they belong in STEM. I'm very, very excited about that. They don't see it as a difficult space anymore because we have a lot of role models who are actually showcasing themselves. And that's what people need to see. Because I remember going to, uh, you know, the self-communities or the low-income backgrounds and I'm talking to young girls, especially when we're having a mentoring session. And when I ask them, what do you want to be? <laughs> I mean, we always ask that question of what do you want to be when you grow up? Or where do you see yourself? And they just talk about what they can see around them right now. And we realize that that's because they don't see enough. How can they see enough? And that's the reason why we started a form of few trips. So we go to places like Microsoft, Andela, um, Union Bank. We go to the embassy when, then maybe when there are programs. And the moment they see, you know, the buildings, the people, the ladies are like, oh my God, I want to be like, oh, I'm like, okay, mission accomplished. Thank you. <laughs> so all of a sudden they're like, so what is our run? I'm like, she's a security engineer. I'm like, okay, what can I do to be a security engineer? So you see, the process of learning has taken place whereby they are now thinking for themselves. You know, now having the voice and agency to say, oh, now I think I want to finish school. If my parents would tell me I want to get married at 13 or 14, I won't do it because I've seen something bigger. I see that auntie over there, she's doing amazing and she's in tech. So, you know, all that just changed and I'm just smiling whenever I see, you know, cases like that. And it's the reason why mentoring is a key part of the work we do. Abisoy is one of the role models that girls in STEM look up to. What I hope people will learn is that, well, life is life. Life would never be equal, but you are strong and you're powerful because you're human. And because you exist, you have a story. Whatever story you have, Whatever knowledge you have can be of value to the next person. So trust your growth process. Engaging women and girls in STEM education is a critical part of creating an equitable future for all. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. First, advocate to have more women in leadership roles in STEM. Let your favorite technology companies know that this is important to you. Second, reach out and see how you can help local programs in your community that empower girls' education in STEM. And third, when you see women and girls underrepresented in technology conferences, panels, or in conversations, speak out. Help highlight amazing women in STEM. If you'd like to hear more empowering stories from Finding Humanity or to learn more about this episode, visit our website at findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Your ratings and reviews help Finding Humanity reach new audiences. So we thank you for your support. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. 
Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. Our co-executive producers are Camille Lorente and Hazami Bermada. Associate producers are Fernanda Oriegas and Tani Jurapaprasok. Policy and background research by Carolina Mindica and Tani Jurapaprasok. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. For this episode, I'd like to thank Abisoy Ajaya Kinfolarin and Rashma Sajani. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again on the next episode.